Welcome to Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia. This podcast is a collection of messages designed to help you grow in our three anchors of real devotional life, real community, and real responsibility. We hope that you enjoy this message and that it encourages you in your spiritual growth. Well, hello, everyone. My name is Savannah, and I have... Thank you. I have the joy... I have the joy of introducing our guest speaker for tonight. So the man um, who is speaking tonight, his story has impacted me greatly. But I actually haven't met him until tonight, like right when he came to the SAB for the first time, because I'd only read about his story in books. And so it's really special that he's here with us tonight. Um, He has traveled thousands of miles to be here. Right? Crazy. He has also traveled thousands of years to be here, so you're going to have to talk to him later about how he time traveled. It's also weird because he bears a striking resemblance to our director, and they even share the same name. It's crazy, but would you join me in welcoming our guest speaker for tonight, Peter the Disciple. Wow, Savannah, that's quite the introduction. <laughs> yes, it's, it's fortunate that I, that I have a beard because I hear your campus pastor does not. Um, I do like his name though, but I just want to say if I could travel more with Tim, that would be awesome because, y- you know, you just nailed that, bro. So yeah, if you don't know me, um, thank you, Savannah, for the introduction. My name is uh, Peter from Capernaum. Um, Actually, I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a little bit, but actually my given name is Simon, but Jesus changed my name to Peter, which means the rock. And so basically he gave me the nickname Rocky, like how sweet is that when Jesus calls you Rocky? You know what I'm saying? So um, I think that's pretty sweet. But we are closing the uh, series called The Crown and the Cross through the Gospel of Mark uh, tonight, and so they asked me if I would come speak, because as you probably have heard over the course of the semester, um, Mark's Gospel, Mark's account of the Gospel is actually, um, by many people in church history, have referred to it as my memoir. And in some ways it's true, because Mark heard me preach the Gospel over and over and over again, and he recorded a lot, and we kind of worked on this together. And so it's my joy to be here, and we're going to cover the last three chapters. I didn't put chapter marks in, but we're going to cover the last three chapters. Um, To be honest with you, I was a little hesitant to accept the invitation. By the way, I'm going to be sharing my story, but I'm also a preacher. If you read the book of Acts, I I can preach. So so if you can throw out an amen every now and again, I won't be offended, okay? Just so you know, like, that, that's all right. Um, but anyways, uh, I was a little hesitant to uh, accept the invitation for a few reasons. One, I don't travel as much as I used to, as Savannah referred. It's, it takes a little bit to get here. But, um, but as I thought about what they wanted me to share, it really is the heart of the good news. And... Not only that, but I know our Lord loves you so much. I said it's worth it, okay? And also, um, I, I hesitated to accept this engagement because what I'm going to talk about were some, we'll just say it wasn't my finest moment. They, they, they weren't my finest moments I'm going to talk about. 
if I were going to share, summarize my testimony that I'm, that I'm going to share into one phrase, it'd, it'd be the, the best, worst weekend of my life. I'll start when we were sitting at the table. Jesus in the center. We won't talk about who's on the right and left, but anyways. <laughs> um, but we were all sitting there. And it was Passover. I mean, Jerusalem, we just arrived at Jerusalem and Jerusalem was teeming with people. There was a buzz in the air. It was just, there was so much anticipation because we were celebrating the Passover. We're celebrating God's redemption of his people. And we were having a wonderful Passover meal. I'm sure you've read about some of it. I'm not gonna talk about all of it. I just wanna talk about how it ended. It ended in a way that frankly, no one anticipated. Jesus lobbed a zinger over the table as dinner was ending. And you know what he said? He said, you're all going to fall away. <laughs> I said, no, Jesus, we are not all going to fall away. I mean, there were some people, if I'm really honest with you, that I knew probably would. You know what I'm saying? Like, I mean, we, we hung out a lot. I mean, I kind of knew. But I knew I was not going to fall away. And Jesus quickly retorted. He said, before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. I said, Jesus, if I have to die with you, I would never do that. Come on. But to be honest with you, you could tell by the look in his eyes, he was unconvinced. Me and my big mouth. We left dinner and we left, we went down the side of the Temple Mount through the Kidron Valley up the Mount of Olives. And as we were going up the Mount of Olives, there was an olive grove there that we had been to before. You've heard of it as the Garden of Gethsemane and and I could just tell you this, that as, as I looked at, I mean, I'd spent three years with Jesus and as I looked at Jesus, I could just tell, tell something was wrong. And, and so he, he had us sit down and we were sitting there and he was pacing back and forth and you could just see him. It was like he was carrying the weight of the world. And finally he said, Peter, James, John, let's go on a walk. And as we went on a walk, I'd never seen Jesus like this before. He began to weep and weep. He began to shake. I'd never seen our Lord like that. He looked in his eyes, you could see the anxiety in his eyes. Eventually, he said, I, as, I, I need to get away and spend some time with the Father. And, and so me and James and John, we just sat down and we kind of watched his silhouette go into the, into the distance and about a stone's throw away. And I remember him just kind of crumbling to the ground. And as he crumbled to the ground, I started to hear wailing and weeping.
as he would cry out. And then, to my utter shame, I fell asleep. He came back profusely sweating, just riddled, overwhelmed. His soul was overwhelmed, just riddled with anxiety and the weight. And I remember hearing, Simon, you're asleep? I woke up and he said, couldn't you just pray with me for an hour? I assume he came back because he needed encouragement as he was dealing with all the, uh, all the angst of his soul. And here I was asleep. So I looked at him and said, yeah, we, we, we can. And then he said, your spirit is willing, but your flesh is weak. And so we began to pray. And he went back off and we began to hear him weep again. We began to hear him cry out to the Father again. And we fell asleep again. And he came back. Then he went back to praying and we did it again. The one time, the one time our Lord needed us the most, we failed him. We failed him. When he woke us up the third time, he said, they're coming. They're going, I'm going to be handed over to the hands of sinners. And it was dark and we could see some torches on their way, lighting the, the way of this crowd. And, and suddenly, as they got nearer, to my amazement, it was Judas that was leading them. And Judas walked up and I was like, and he kissed Jesus. I mean, it's still to this moment, it pangs my heart to think about that because you got to understand in that day, you, you would greet your family with a kiss. You would greet your closest friends with a kiss. And Judas comes up to Jesus with that intimate greeting and hands Jesus over. And they arrested him. And we watched as they started to rough Jesus up a little bit. And all I can say is my adrenaline started pumping like you can only imagine. And there was this like fight or flight instinct. And pretty soon that instinct took over. And every one of us ran away. 
We were so eager to get away from Jesus because we did not want to be identified with him in this. We were like, we got, it was like self-preservation took over and we took off. In fact, one of us took off running so fast that when they tried to grab him, they grabbed his cloak, ripped his linen cloak, which by the way, linen cloaks were expensive in that day, ripped his linen cloak and he took off running naked, and we ran till we knew we were safe. And finally we stopped to, to catch our breath. And I look back and there's the naked guy. And I, I have to admit, we, got a, we laughed. <laughs> we're like, dude. He's like, man, they grabbed. I had to get out of there though, man. You see the, there are a lot of them. What you got to understand is, is in that day, nakedness was a sign of great shame. And the more I thought of it, the more I realized he was really symbolic of us all. Running away in shame. I wonder how Jesus felt as he saw us run. I mean, I remember when blind Bartimaeus came to Jesus, he was such in a hurry to get to Jesus, he left his cloak behind. And now here we are, the disciples who are in such a hurry to get away from Jesus that we'll let him pull our cloak right because we've got to get away. I mean, when Jesus called us to be his disciples, the first thing he told us is he called us to be with him. And as soon as it gets hard, we abandon him. Well, as I started to feel the regret and shame of, of that, I told the other guys, I said, you guys can go on. And I was watching them. I could see the light in the distance. I, and I was watching them march Jesus off. And so I followed at a great distance. I didn't want to get too close to be at risk, but I followed at a distance. And I followed him to the chief priest's house. And when we entered the courtyard, there was this fire burning there. I don't know if you've ever been in a cold desert night, but let me tell you, it gets cold in the desert at night. And there was a fire there. And so I stopped there to warm myself in the fire. And in some ways, again, that was a bit of a picture. Here's Jesus. I should be up there with him. That disciples are with, are to be with him. And And here I am more concerned about my own comfort than about Jesus. Jesus was being interrogated and being accused of being a false prophet. They were asking him questions about his identity. Oh, so are you the son of the blessed one? And he looked at him and he said with his, with his steely eyes, I am. And here I was, warming myself by the fire. And the servant girl comes up to me. I mean, the people asking Jesus the questions about who he was had, to, had authority to kill him. This servant girl had no authority to do anything to me. She's like, hey, you're with that Nazarene, aren't you? And I was like, what? Who, who are you talking about? Of course not. 
She looked at me all befuddled. She got some other people. Okay, you, you, no, you were with that guy, weren't you? I said, I'm telling you, I was not with it. But here's the problem. Every time I spoke, they could tell us from Galilee. I mean, it's like walking around here and calling Grounds Campus or something, you know? And they, and they could tell. And they could tell. I was from Galilee. My accent gave me away. And so they said one more time, you are one of his disciples, aren't you? And I said, I swear on my mom's grave, I'm not his disciple. And no more did I get that out of my mouth. And a rooster crowed. As they started to spit on Jesus and punch Jesus and beat Jesus, I knew Jesus could hear that rooster too. He knew. I broke, I broke down and I went out and I wept and I wept, heartbroken. I mean, put it together. Here's Jesus fully surrendered to the will of God and me full of self-preservation. I mean, here's Jesus being questioned by people who had the authority to kill him and I'm being questioned by a servant girl with no authority to do anything. Here's Jesus being faithfully answering questions of who he is that will cost him his life and there's me lying that I'm not one of his disciples. Here's Jesus being accused of being a false prophet. And here I am fulfilling the very prophecy he said I would fulfill, denying him. See, here's what I realized that night. With all my arrogance of my great commitment to Jesus, I realized that I had been committed to Jesus, but I wasn't surrendered to Jesus. See, when you're committed to Jesus, you still have the reins. You're still in control. But when you're surrendered, Jesus has the reins. And Jesus is in control. See, on, on his way to the cross... Jesus was handed over many times. I mean, Judas handed him over to the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin handed him over to Pilate. Pilate handed him over to the crowd and the crowd to the soldiers. And the point is is this. No one wanted to take responsibility for the death of Jesus, but everyone was responsible for the death of Jesus. The disciple the Jewish leaders, the crowd, the Roman government. Everyone 
was responsible. After they They beat him. They walked him to Golgotha. And at that point, he was so weak and so wounded that he couldn't carry it. And so they got this bystander who was there, Simon of Cyrene, and had him carry the cross. And, and it still cuts to my heart to say that because that should have been me. I mean, I'm his disciple. And when he called me, he told, I mean, he told me that if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to take up a cross and follow me. But there was no disciple around to carry a cross because none of us were willing. So they had to get the bystander. To carry his cross. I wonder what comfort it would have been if Jesus looked over and saw one of his disciples with him. Should have been me. But we abandoned him. I mean, I could talk about the cross for a long time, and I know you guys have finals, so I'm not going to keep you that long. But let me just point out four things that we talk about in my memoir about Jesus about what Jesus absorbed that Friday. I mean, you've heard it before. They they mocked him. They insulted him. They flogged him within an inch of his life. They spit on him because they're so disgusted with him. And then they crucified him. And I mean, if I could sum up what what happened that day, it would just be this, that the depth of human depravity was unleashed on Jesus. I mean, if they could do anything to unleash their depravity, he just absorbed it. What happened on the cross? He absorbed human depravity. It was unleashed. And then they crucified him. And you guys know what that means, but probably something, here's what you need to understand. Crucifixion was all, it was, they did everything in their power to make it as shameful as possible. And so what they would do is they would strip you naked. So they stripped Jesus naked and put him on the cross. And you know where they put the cross? They put the cross on the edge of town, right by the neck, the major thoroughfare, because they wanted to make sure as, as, as the town was just buzzing for Passover, that as many people as possible would see him. And that's why they put King of the Jews over, because they want to know any would-be insurrectionist, this is what happens. And they wanted to shame him. I mean, it's like taking a picture of somebody and putting it on Instagram for as many views as possible. That's why they crucified him, where they did, when they did, how they did. What happened on the cross? He absorbed the power of shame. And there's two other things that happened that 
that maybe you would miss if you didn't grow up Jewish. But for those of us who knew the Torah and knew the Old Testament, we could never miss it. They took thorns and they turned it into a crown and they put it on his head. Okay, why is that a big deal for, for us? Because we knew, I mean, this goes all the way back to Genesis 3, that the, that the sign, the symbol of the curse was that the ground would produce thorns. And what was happening was as they put that, oh, and they didn't just put, they, as they forced it on his head and then took their, their rods and, and beat it on, into his skull, they were literally, crowned. that was his coronation moment as he was taking and absorbing the curse of sin on his head. That's what was going on. And I, I remember about 11.30, it was blazing hot in the desert. But by noon, this ominous darkness started to roll in. I mean, in the middle of the day, I mean, it was, you could see it coming. And it just settled. Settled over the whole land. Now, again, we as people who knew our Old Testament, we remembered that one of the plagues in Egypt was darkness. And we remembered our prophet Amos who talked about when the divine judgment would come, that darkness would cover the land. And we knew that what Jesus was doing in that moment is he was absorbing the divine judgment of our sin as darkness settled in. And then he breathed his last and this Roman executioner who had, I mean, he'd killed many people. He was an expert torturer and executioner. He said this. He said, surely that was the son of God. Why? Because he'd never seen anybody die like that. After three o'clock, the darkness started to roll off. But if I'm quite honest with you, it never left me. Darkness just hung over me. It was despair, absolute despair. Despair because my hopes were dashed and despair when I considered how I responded in Jesus's worst moments. Well, after he died, Joseph of Arimathea did something that honestly was very incredible. He went to, the, to Pilate and asked for his body. Okay, so Joseph of Arimathea was, was a member of the Sanhedrin. Here's, okay, here's a guy who had just been crucified as a traitor and Joseph of Arimathea was a highly respected man and he put all of his respect on the line and identified himself with the crucified Lord. 
I mean, that's what we were supposed to do as disciples. Again, that should have been us. We should have been the one identifying with our crucified Lord. But rather it was Joseph. And Joseph had him buried. And then Sunday morning. I remember the ladies that had journeyed with us from Galilee to Jerusalem said, we're going to go and we're going to give, uh, give Jesus a proper burial. And, and they got up really early and the rest of us slept in. And, and when they got there, they could not believe what they saw. The, not only was the stone rolled away, there was a an angel there that appeared like a young man and says, he is not here, he is risen. I mean, and, and okay, so when they said he is risen, then all of a sudden, all the thoughts of the things that Jesus had said about he would rise from the dead started to flood their mind. And they start, is it true? Could this be true? And they, I mean, this to me is like one of the most incredible moments because it's like Jesus calls this shot and then he hits it. You know what I'm saying? Like he called, he says, I want to rise from the dead. And then he rises, he does the impossible. He rises from the dead. And the, and the angel says, the angel says, uh, go and tell the disciples and Peter. That I want to meet him in, in Galilee. Well, when the ladies reached me and found me, and I, I mean, I, I could hardly wrap my head around the fact that, that Jesus had rose from the dead. But you know what? I will never forget is when those ladies said, and the angel said, tell the disciples. And then they came up to me and they said, and tell Peter. They told me to tell you. And I thought out of, out of all the people that they could have said, and make sure you, that, that they, he's, they said me. I mean, I was thinking about all the times that I'd failed Jesus. I was the one that, that denied him three times. I'm the one who fell asleep three times. I'm the one who should have been carrying his cross, but was nowhere to be found. I'm the one who fled. I'm the one who should have given him. The, I'm, and he says, tell Peter. I mean, when I heard that, it was like the shame that I'd been carrying for the last three days just began to fall off of me. And, and, and then as I, as I heard that, my heart began to race with excitement that, that he, this was good news for me too. And then as it started to sink in, my eyes began to well up with joy. That Jesus wanted to make sure that I knew that, this, that his victory was for me as well. That this resurrection would change my life as well. That he had won the victory over sin, over death, and over hell. And it was my victory too. It was good news for me. Okay. So what, all, what does all this mean? I'm just going to give you four quick things and we're going to call it a semester. Is that all right? I got to get back anyway. So. <laughs> Ha! <laughs> 
what does all this mean for you? I, I, I truly, I don't want you to forget these things. Number one, it means this. Jesus came for the weak. And that is me. And if you're really honest, that's you. Jesus came for the weak. I'm not sure where you feel weak tonight, but it's good news that Jesus came for the weak. That's good news. See, the story of the gospel isn't about the greatness of the disciples. I mean, you guys just finished the gospel of Mark. I mean, everywhere you read, we blow it. There's only one person who doesn't blow it, and that's King Jesus. It's about his victory. It's not, right? I mean, it's about his strength, not ours. It's about his victory. I mean, if you ever want to question the veracity of Scripture, think about how we portray ourselves. Like, if we were making stuff up, we wouldn't have made ourselves look so dense all the time, okay? But the point is, is that is the point. Jesus came for weak people and we're weak. Second is this, and it's off of that, is it means that your failure doesn't have to be final. I mean, all these places that I failed him that I just laid out over and over and over. They're not final. But Jesus' victory is what's final in my life. Jesus' faithfulness is what's final in my life. Jesus' grace is what's final in my life. I failed him so much, but he is so faithful. Jesus loves me, this I know. This is my story. This is my song, praising my Savior all the day. This, your failure doesn't have to be final. So I don't know where your failure is, but I just know that. It doesn't have to be final. Third, God's grace is truly amazing and truly life-changing. Okay, <laughs> there's two things that changed my life. One is the grace of God that I experienced that day. It changed my life. The second is the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't have time to talk about the second one. Maybe I'll come back next semester to talk to you about that one because I got some stuff to say about that. But anyways, but for tonight, when you read the book of Acts and you see me stand, you see me in prison, you see me stand before hostile crowds, how, how could that happen? Because I had tasted of the goodness of the grace of God. And the grace that I found in knowing and loving Jesus changed my life. And then finally, the last thing, I'll leave you with this, is it brings a question. And that is, what kind of disciple are you going to be? See, Jesus is so gracious, but nowhere in the gospel does he lower his desire for his disciples. 
He's so gracious, but he never lowers his desire for his disciples. He, he still has certain desires for his disciples. And I don't know if you noticed, but the gospel of Mark has an abrupt ending and we did that on purpose. <laughs> it just kind of leaves you hanging. In fact, let me hang. Anyways, I don't need to go into the end of the gospel of Mark, but I will say this. Because it, it begs this question. It kind of is sought off because it wants you to ask this question. What kind of disciple will you be? You see us, you see Jesus's desires clearly stated. You see us blow it over and over and over again. And Jesus gives you his grace and the spirit's power so you can be his disciple. And it asks that question like, what kind of disciple will you be? Will you follow him only when times are good? Or will you follow him in difficulties? Here's what I know. And as you read the gospel, you've figured it out too, that as you follow Jesus, you're gonna see two things. Number one is you're gonna see miracles. You're gonna see God do stuff that only God can do. But the other thing you're gonna see is this. You're gonna see that there's a cross involved. And when it starts to cost you something to follow Jesus, what kind of disciple will you be? Will you be like me who is a committed disciple until the going gets tough, but never a surrendered disciple until I saw him resurrected? Or will you be a surrendered disciple? Will you stand with me and we'll have the worship team come forward. I want to tell you this. Your Lord is worthy of whatever it costs you to follow him. He's the one who endured human depravity at its worst. He endured the shame of the cross. He endured the curse of sin. He endured divine justice and judgment. And he rose again victorious over sin, over death, and over hell. And his kingdom, while marked by the cross, does lead to glory. And so I want to encourage you, as you close this this series called The Crown and the Cross. For you to never forget that whatever it costs you to follow Jesus, he is worthy. And those four things, he came for the weak, right? And your failure doesn't have to be final. And his grace is amazing. And I just want to leave you with the question, what kind of disciple will you be? Let's close in worship. Lord, I pray that you would help this story to really sink into our souls. That we would know that you did come for the weak. You came for us, for me that we would know that your grace is truly amazing, that it would change our lives. 
that the power of your victory, the power of your resurrection would change our lives. And Lord, we pray that we would be, by the grace of God and the Spirit's power, disciples who follow you. No matter the season that we follow you. For your glory, the good of the world, and our joy. And so, Lord, as we wrap up this semester, I pray for a grace upon these students as they go home. I pray that you would help them to be faithful as they go home. Lord, I know that there are such dramatically different circumstances that so many people will go home to, but we know, as was already said, you go with us. And Lord, may we be found close to you. May we not follow you at a distance and be more concerned about our own comfort, warming ourselves by the fire. May we be found close to you. Lord, I pray for the community. I pray that there'd be connections that would persist over break. Brotherhood and sisterhood that would persist over break. There'd be sources of encouragement. If people are in their own garden, that they would find people alert and ready to encourage them. And Lord, I pray that your goodness and mercy will follow them as they walk through this finals week and into break. Lord, thank you. We get to celebrate your incarnation. That you came to be with us. For the benediction for the semester. May God bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you. May he be gracious to you and turn his countenance towards you. And may he give you peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Have a wonderful break following Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Chi Alpha at the University of Virginia podcast. For more information, you can visit our website, xaatuva.com.